six, six five, four, three. Hello, this is Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Oshida. I'm the entertainment editor at The Verge. And I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. Uh, coming up later in the podcast, I'm going to be interviewing uh, neuroscientist Jeff Zacks on uh, what film editing can tell us about our brains. Uh, it's very cool. So I, I hope you stay tuned. Yeah, that's coming up later in the podcast. And uh, before that, we're going to talk about Magic Mike XXL and space telescopes. Um, but right now, uh, I understand that you have yet another special guest in the studio with you right now, Liz. I, I do. I do. Um, you may not hear much from her, though. Uh, I, I brought in my kitten. Her name is Jeeves. <laughs> she is about three months old. Um, and there was sort of a popular demand in the uh, Verge San Francisco office to meet her. So oh I brought her in today. And it's like bringing a baby in. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. We passed her around. Uh, Casey did a Periscope recording of her. Oh, my God. Um, so, you know, all the normal stuff. Right now Baby's she's just kind of... Baby's first Periscope. Yeah, right? <laughs> I think she did oh really well. So I'm imagining that Jeeves is named after the butler Jeeves. That's um, right. Of Ask Jeeves fame and of Jeeves and Wooster fame. Yeah, that's right. She... Um, <laughs> Yeah, she's a, you know, a tuxedo cat. Uh, mm-hmm. So she's very formal. She's oh, got little white perfect. gloves. Um, well, she might be a good subject for <laughs> um, a new a new recurring feature we're going to have on The Verge, yeah. which <laughs> is starting this week. It's starting this weekend. That's right. Okay. So um, we've been thinking about how to do more fun stuff on the weekends at The Verge. And uh, we're going to be launching some very cool things this weekend. So please, you know. Log on, check check in. Uh, one of the, the things weekend. we're doing is uh, the Verge review of animals um, because we already review technology, but we thought it might be fun to review species as well. So, mm-hmm. um, so <laughs> what's going on is um, I'm going to start it off uh, by reviewing species. The species is cats. Uh, and then every week, one of our writers will pick a species. Uh, so far, some of the suggestions include um, jellyfish, uh, koalas, they're um, controversial. Yeah, the, the koala, the koala the review may be controversial. Koala. <laughs> the drug addicted koala. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, but we're going to do highly subjective reviews of animals. Uh, so you know, do you worry about this at all from a from an ethical standpoint as far as criticism goes? Like, is it possible that like we might show our speciesist nature? On the verge um, by favoring, say, cats over jellyfish? I mean, we might, but like the response that I've gotten so far has been people being wildly enthusiastic about some very gross animals. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it might just be like an outlet mostly for people's enthusiasm for weird yeah. animal videos that they like discovered late at night on YouTube. Um, um, but uh, also coming to the verge soon, uh, yeah, I understand there's going to be there's some space telescope news. Yeah, well, so this up. is on the verge right now. Um, you can check it out. But oh, yeah, sorry. Um, the Association of Universities for Research and Astronomy have released their plans for the High Definition Space Telescope, uh, which is uh, an observatory that um, could potentially succeed uh, NASA's um, James Webb Space Telescope. Um, 
And and I should note that that that, that telescope is not actually in space yet. Like this, that's not scheduled yeah. to go to space until 2018. But the lead time on developing space telescopes is like 20 to 25 years. So, right. you know, you kind of have to plan pretty far in advance um, how you're going to do things uh, before before you do it. But so the proposed telescope has a mirror that's uh, almost 40 feet across, which Whoa. is about twice the size of the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, and it's going to be situated uh, about a million miles from Earth. And what's wow. cool about that is that, like, you, not only... with with all space telescopes, you don't have as much atmospheric distortion, um, which is something that, you know, astronomers can sort of correct for from Earth. Um, mm-hmm. they, they try to make sure that they're in places where there's no, there's going to be less of it. And they have some algorithms to help filter it out. But really, like, to get a clear view, you kind of need to be in space. So mm-hmm. that's that's the appeal of, of the Hubble, the James Webb, and now the uh, high-definition space telescope. How much longer does the Hubble have before it's expired, before it's retired? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I want to say that um, the Hubble is, is pretty close to to, to being past uh, the point at which people thought it would be usable. Um, mm-hmm. And we should keep in mind that, that, you know, it's been it's been up there 20 years, I think. Yeah, it's been up. Yeah, I've, as long as I've been. I I feel like I remember it going up. I feel like I was. I mean, I was. I would have been aware of it. I feel like. Yeah, and yeah. it was. If you might remember this too, it was a failure at first. There was like some mm-hmm. issues. There were some issues with the lenses and the um, the images were blurry, and so there was an, uh, a mission that was sent up, and uh, astronauts fixed the telescope. Yeah. Um, so that's very cool. Uh, but yeah, the Hubble, you know, um, that was the 90s. So so you know, it's it's not as up to date as as we might like, and. Um, in 1996, like right after that launch, um, this is the Aura, the the group that that announced their plans today. Um, they announced the plans for what would be the James Webb Space Telescope, which we're planning to send to space in 2018. Mm-hmm. So, now, yeah. would that necessarily go if the Hubble like? Is it just because the Hubble might get worn down and won't work anymore, or is it just because they want to have a newer, shinier one up there? A little bit of both. Um, I mean, the James Webb Space Telescope um, basically builds on stuff we've learned since Hubble, um, Mm -hmm. uses... uses different kinds of technology and is meant specifically to sort of look at um, stuff that was very close to the beginning of the universe. It's using infrared, basically, to Mm. look at really, really, really old objects. Cool. So, like, those invisible planets and stuff like that? Well, it's not an infrared thing? That's not an infrared... Well... Wait, what is that? Uh, Well, so, (laughs) it's funny you mentioned planets, because that's that's what um, the High Definition Space Telescope uh, is is sort of meant to do. Because you might might know that um, Kepler, uh, which is another mission... um, uh, has been it, that's another space observatory, um, but it's been observing Earth-like planets that orbit other stars. Uh, right. We found a whole lot of them. Like we thought for a long time that we our our solar system was pretty unique, and thanks to Kepler, we know it's not um, exoplanets. That's right. So like we found like something like um, two thousand exoplanets yeah. in our universe, um, and there might be around eleven billion Earth-sized planets orbiting sun-like stars in yeah. the habitable zones where you can have liquid water. Um, is that going to be something that the, I'm going to call it the HDST. Yes, please. Um, 
Is that going to be something that it would be able to uh, look at closer? The, the, well, the, like, so this is what's exciting about it. They're hoping they're designing it to basically look directly at these planets because the way that we've sort of been getting information now is we've noticed um, something is passing in front of their stars that's right. dimming the star. And yeah. we've been making observations based on that. Um, and so this this would would be basically you'd be able to observe the dim light that planets throw off directly um, mm. using wavelengths from ultraviolet and something pretty close to near infrared, um, which means, you know, you could start to do things like uh, check out a planet's atmosphere and, mm. you know, figure out, you know, if there's enough atmosphere there for us to think that maybe those planets might have life. Yeah. Yeah. Because right now, I mean, they make they they kind of judge the. The chemical makeup, or the or the the atmosphere, or what what um, what elements comprise the planet. That's mostly kind of guessed through these different light wavelengths, right? It's not yeah. none of it's direct, right? None of it is direct. Yeah. So this is the hope is that this would this would allow for direct imaging, which would give us much better information. Uh, and cool. to be fair, like some of the technology um, that needs that's needed to make this a reality isn't ready yet. So like you would have to figure out how to. Um, do something called starlight suppression because obviously the planet is throwing off very dim light and it's right next to a very bright star. So you need to figure out how to um, block out the starlight um, to allow for direct detection of an orbiting planet. It's sort of like polarized lenses on sun sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> Can throw so, off that glare. That's right. But so again, like this is something that's going to be like 25 years out. This is a, sort of a heads up to physicists like, hey, um, <laughs> this is what you should be working on. Um, let's figure out how to do this so that we can make this mission happen. Cool. Um is it going to get a name? Is it going to get somebody's name? Stuck I hope. On it, it? I hope so. Um, that should be know. a contest. I, I think there should be a contest. I mean, <laughs> you know, Kepler and Galileo. Um, I, I, you know, um, I, I, I would hesitate to name a, a telescope after Galileo. My feelings, my dislike of Galileo is, I think, pretty well known. <laughs> uh, uh, he was actually a just a jerk to Kepler. Um, and this is another fun little known fact about science history. He was totally wrong when he took on the Pope. Mm -hmm. He, um, I mean, he was right, but for the wrong reasons, basically. He um, was arguing that the, um, that the, uh, the Earth orbited the sun and his proof was uh, the tides and his theory of tides is just entirely wrong, like observably wrong. Like he, he had one tide per day and like at that point everybody knew that there were two. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, and so the Pope sort of stance was like, yo, like I, I could be into this heliocentrism thing, but you're going to have to bring me real evidence. And Galileo basically made fun of the Pope. And so the Pope was like, all right, well, I guess we got to, I guess we got to bring this guy in. <laughs> you make that Pope sound so chill. Like, I mean, I know <laughs> now we're very used to a chill Pope, but back then I imagine he probably wasn't like, oh, I could be into this heliocentrism thing. <laughs> well, so this is what's interesting about that whole time period is that there, there were actually, um, uh, there, there still are actually Catholic astronomers, um, but that was something that was, that was, you know, done. And so, uh, the Pope was, was friendly with Galileo, um, mm -hmm. And I think really didn't necessarily want to have to bring him to heel. Um, but Galileo just kept being a jerk in public. Um, and so, so he sort of politically got forced into this thing because Galileo had made a ton of enemies uh, among influential high-ranking Catholics. Um, and when, when he it's finally Gal came for the Pope, who had sort of been protecting him, uh, that was when he, he had to eventually uh, answer um, for what he was doing. 
Was Galileo a troll? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, like his, he did his most important work at the very beginning of his career and at the very end of his career. And in the middle, he basically just like wrote propaganda. <laughs> so he was a, he was a crazy guy who, uh, yeah, who didn't yeah, understand I mean, how the ocean worked. Very smart guy with, <laughs> with, with a bunch of bad information. And yeah. Kepler actually defended him. And the thanks that Kepler got was not like the Galileo didn't respond to his letters for like 15 years, 10 years, Man. something like that. Like just totally ignored poor Kepler, um, who mm. was, uh, he's the reason we know that, um, our planets have, um, oval orbits rather than circular ones. Right. Right. Um, well that was, that was interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that there was a reason to hate Galileo. Now, and I now do. you do. Now I can have <laughs> beef with a scientist. Um, I, uh, I, Personally, I prefer it when bros get along um, and support each other and um, love each other and aren't afraid to get shirtless together and um, and grind uh, the ground and um, give women exactly what they want. This sounds um, like we're going to talk about Magic Mike. Are we going to talk about Magic Mike? We are going to talk about Magic Mike <laughs> because both of you and I have seen it and um, I think we're both pretty into it and... I, 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 you had a, I think a very different experience watching this movie than I did. I want to, I want you to, to elaborate on that a little bit, a little bit. Okay. So I went with a crew of my girlfriends. Uh, we all showed up at, um, uh, the Jack London Square Theater in Oakland. And Please tell me you brought your cats. <laughs> we did not. No, we did not. We left the cats at home. <laughs> but so we get to the theater and it's like all, crews of women basically like there were a couple of dudes there um not a lot of them um and it was like women of all ages like there was a group of women right in front of us one of them was like oh i'm really you know i'm gonna apologize in advance i have a very loud laugh and we were like whatever no i know i didn't hear this woman laugh once because it was rowdy in this theater like (laughs) um emily did you ever go to the alley cat when you were in iowa city um oh oh the gay bar yeah yes i did did you ever go there for like the the nights where they had male strippers i think it was thursday nights no i don't i don't think i ever went for that (laughs) (laughs) that was fun um but it was a lot it it put me in the mind of that because um basically people were hollering at the screen there was a lot of clapping you know shrieking like gasping like at one point um uh the character's name is big dick richie uh, and he yes. says that he's having a hard time getting laid because women look at his dick and then go, uh, do you want a hand job instead? And like th- women in the theater volunteered, <laughs> like jumped <laughs> to their feet and volunteered, like hands went up. Um, and like during the, the strip club scenes, um, it was hard to tell how much was like audience noise, like from, from the film and how much was audience noise from the actual audience, which was cheering and hooting and shouting and laughing and clapping. It was just, yeah. it was wild. It was a, so much fun. Man. Um, yeah. The, I mean, this is a sequel to Magic Mike, which came out a couple of years ago, um, which was directed by C- Steven Soderbergh. The sequel is not directed by C- Steven Soderbergh. It's directed by his... Uh, his AD, I believe, from the first one, and it's a guy who's been who's produced a lot of Soderbergh's work in the past, so it's not like a foreign entity. And Soderbergh shot it, um, so it basically, I mean, it's it's not a case of that I think a lot of other films get into where you get a sequel and it goes all nuts and crazy and tries to like be this ultimate people pleasing meme fest. I mean, it's a pretty 
I think it's a pretty mellow film for something that focuses on a lot of uh, elaborate strip routines. It's like a very pretty intimate, like normal, realistic film. Um, I mean, all of the all of their the 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 their their dance routines and all of that feel within the realm of possibility. They're not like step up type dance routines where they're like in a warehouse somewhere and like magically there are all these things that they can swing off of and stuff. It's like no, they're in a convention hall in Myrtle Beach, um, which I appreciate. <laughs> I like a lot because um, you kind of get the best of both. Then you have a film that feels like it's about actual people to a certain degree, and also one that has. Um, Lots of grinding in it. So it was a remarkably yeah. sweet film too. I think yeah. that's worth saying. Like, you know, there's a there's a scene uh relatively early on where they, they stop at a place, uh I think it's called Mad Mary's. Uh um, yeah. And there's a voguing contest and the guys just get up in vogue. There's no like, you know, disclaimer, like we're heterosexual or whatever. Yeah. Like they just get up and do it. And yeah. you know, um I I was watching it. And like, man, like, you know, there at no point throughout the movie were women the butt of the joke, right? Like, no. they were allowed to be as raunchy as they wanted, and it didn't matter what color they were or what size they were or what sexual orientation they happened to have. Like, all of that was viewed as being totally legitimate, which yeah. is rare in a movie, unfortunately. Yeah, and um, it's really kind of, um, I think it's implied, especially in... Jada Pinkett Smith's character's um, kind of private club, like private uh, pleasure house sort of for women, uh, that this is a place that they can be safe, that they can objectify men, where they can appreciate the beauty of other men, where they can feel like they're beautiful and be unappreciated and everybody's safe and having a good time. And that um, and that that was uh, that was in contrast to, you know, what existed outside of that place. Like, this was, like, a special environment. And that's sort of how the movie feels. Yeah. Um, I, it's not often that you get movies that are that kind to the female viewer. Yeah. Um, and that's and, secure in themselves, too. Like, both secure about the characters. Like, obviously, there there's so many gay jokes that are out there on the table for them that a lesser film would have just, like, picked up and taken these cheap shots or whatever but it never does that um it's 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 completely it feels like it does not need to explain that we're we're focusing on you know largely white heterosexual male like characters who spend a lot of time thinking about their appearance and and how their pecs look and stuff and hang out you know as a group as like a as a gang kind of uh and are not gay and are and also aren't uh predatory um i mean i feel like the two things that you that are easy to compare magic mike to for me at least are entourage and um and pitch perfect too those are like the two movies of the summer that i feel like it's looks really great next to because on the one hand you have like a a movie about like a posse of dudes who go around and like you know have each other's backs and stuff but there's something so much more kind of um self-assured uh and yeah just not yeah not predatory nothing that they do is at the expense of other people um they're all just kind of trying to support each other and get through this world and go to the strip convention and yeah, um, yeah. And, like their goals are so modest, right? Like, yeah, yeah. They talk but, about their ambitions and they're like normal ambitions. They're not yeah. out to conquer the world. They're out to have like a cool like yogurt truck. That yeah, makes them they money. want all they want is a yogurt truck. <laughs> I just think it's so it's so refreshing 
like what like what it is and what it stands for and mm-hmm. and how it looks and I don't know. I'm just very. I was. I was pretty happy with it. Yeah, I was too. I mean, you know, one of the things that's tough for me is I go to movies and like I see the way that other women are portrayed, and like that's like those women are usually my point of entry into the movie. Like those are the like the characters for me that like look like me, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that often happens is like they'll get punished for being sexual. Uh, in one way or another, or they're used as trophies or childcare or whatever. They're not the point. And mm-hmm. weirdly, and this also kind of happened with Mad Max, um, yes. even though this is a movie that is ostensibly about a group of men, um, in fact, you know, all of the, the female sort of supporting characters were treated as people. And it, I mean, it's sad that I find that refreshing, Um but like in that in that sense, the level of writing was so much better than what I'm accustomed to. Right. Um, yeah. That it was like, you know, like jumping into like a pool of very cool water on a very hot day. Yeah. And I feel like that's that's still like my biggest bugaboo about um, about about Pitch Perfect, too, is that I just I feel like that that being like the big movie that says that like female audiences won this summer is like the worst example you could use because <laughs> Magic Mike is so much more female positive than Pitch Perfect 2. Pitch Perfect 2 punishes its characters for being fat or slutty or not white or uh, uh or for showing their genitalia in public. Like that that movie is kind of abominable. <laughs> Yeah, compared um, to compared to this this movie that's like all about these hot dudes grinding and stuff, like it's somehow way more accepting of a bunch of different women's experiences. But we should move on um, to your interview, which you did. You want to tell us a little bit about uh, who you're talking to and what you're talking about? Yeah, totally. Okay, so um, speaking of movies, <laughs> um, I I uh, talked with the neuroscientist who studies how people respond to uh, edits and cuts in movies. Um, and uh, the way, like, there's no reason that we should be able to follow uh, cuts in movies. If you think about it, there's, Mm -hmm. there's no point at which, um, you know, we close our eyes and open our eyes and everything in our field of vision has been replaced. Yeah. Um, but we do, our heads don't explode, you know? Um, and so in addition to like movies being useful for psychologists who are looking to study certain phenomenon, um, uh, Jeff Jeff Zachs, who is a professor of neuroscience and radiology at Washington University at St. Louis, uh, has been studying how we respond to sort of cuts, um, how how our brains process it, and how we how how that works, and how that's right. sort of piggybacking on our um, neural architecture, if you hmm. will. So he and I um, had this wonderful chat, uh, basically about how editing works in movies, uh, not in the edit room, but in your brain. So I'm here with uh, Jeff Zachs, who is a professor of psychology and radiology at Washington University in St. Louis, um, and who is also something of a film buff and has, in fact, written an entire book called Flickr um, about how movies affect the brain. Uh, Jeff, you know, my first question is, um, what made you want to study this at all? What was what was the appeal to you of looking at um, how editing in movies uh, affects cognition? Well, one important piece of it Liz, was I've 
realize that anybody who can edit just a mundane dialogue sequence or action sequence in a film so that it makes sense and is memorable and engaging knows a bunch of things about perception and memory that I, as a psychologist and a neuroscientist, really need to know. Uh, Like what? Well, so for example, um, what's the order in which to show people information? What's the information to show? What kinds of transitions are legible to the reader and what are not? Um, All of these things give us clues about how the perceptual system and the memory system and uh, our other cognitive uh, uh, systems work. Let's talk about what a cut is. Um, Movies essentially are uh, short runs of continuous action, um, are are shot, um, that are then sort of spliced together together in something called a cut, um, which used to physically be done on film by like uh, taping (laughs) bits of reel together, right? That's right. Yeah. So you you got it. Back in the day, um, a shot was literally a run of the camera and uh, the result of of running the camera was exposing a bunch of frames of film to light. And if you wanted to join two of those runs to uh, two of those runs of the camera together, what you had to do was cut the film and splice those two points together. Actually, there was a brief moment before they worked out robust ways of, of physically splicing the film where the only way that they could make these edits was by stopping the camera setting things up again, and then starting the camera again. Oh, wow. Um, but, but pretty quick they figured out that, yeah, you, we can cut the film, we can tape it, and it's not all going to fall apart. And so we've, we've sort of seen cuts change over their, what is it, 100-year lifespan? Um, they've, they've, be, they've come faster, I think. Yeah, right? so um, there's a bunch of things that have happened. Uh, one is that the repertoire of, of ways of joining those runs of of the camera together has broadened a bit. Um, so pretty early in the game, people introduced things like fading continuously from one shot to another, um, or iris effects where you constrict in to a point and then constrict back, back out onto something new. Um, or, uh, Things like wiping from one side to the other, which was very popular in the 70s TV that I grew up on. But still, the vast, vast majority of edits are cuts. And as you say, cuts, um, the rate of editing has been getting faster and faster over time. Uh, intriguingly, as my colleague James Cutting and his colleagues have shown, it's happened twice, actually, in the silent era things got faster and faster down from like about 15 or 20 seconds on it for your average shot down to close to five seconds. And then when people started talking in movies, the shots got longer again. And now they're back down to four or five seconds for your typical Hollywood film. And that's an average, of course, there's a big range. Of course. I mean, you know, there's always, there was a a scene in hunger, um, which was a, a movie that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, that's that's remarkable in part because I think it's 20 minutes long. It's just one continuous shot, which is something you almost never see. Yeah, right. And Birdman, of course, is has no apparent cuts until the very end of the movie. Um, there are there are edits that are hidden, um, and there you know from time to time people experiment with those ways of editing. So Rope was a famous early example. Um, the film Russian Art. Uh, 
which is all set in the Hermitage Museum in Petersburg, really is one continuous run of a camera. It's an amazing uh, work if you've never seen it. It's got a cast of more than a thousand people and it trots through hundreds of years of history, these amazing uh, group uh, large group shots with orchestras and dancing and it, and it was all carefully staged and shot in two days in the Hermitage. So I guess, you know, my next question when we're talking about the history of this is how did people initially react to cuts? Because, um, as, as you point out in your work, you know, it's, it's not often that we close our eyes and open them and everything in our field of vision has been changed. <laughs> so it seems like something we shouldn't, we shouldn't react to well. Yeah. Well, and here it's not even closing your eyes, right? So in the book, I said, look, in the whole history, 4 billion year history of our evolution, it was never the case that you're staring at something and everything in your visual field goes away and is immediately instantaneously replaced by something else. So like, why don't our heads explode when that happens? <laughs> So, so did did early film film viewers uh, come come shrieking out of the theaters? Was this something that that totally wigged people out? And that so that's one of those cases where it tells you something important about what's going on in your head, right? And though at first glance it might seem like okay, this is something that's totally foreign to our evolutionarily adaptive environment. When you look at it a little bit differently, you realize that wait a second, the world doesn't disappear physically for us, but we blink every couple seconds, and when you blink, um, your eyes are closed for about 200 to 300 milliseconds. So that's a fifth of a second to a little less than a third of a second. Um, and several times a second, about three times a second on average under most conditions, we make rapid ballistic eye movements called saccades, where your eye is fixating one object or location, and then you quickly move the eye to fixate something else. Now, we're not aware of these most of the time. Like I said, they're happening several times a second. Um, and they're guided by structures that are pretty baked in in our brains. Um, but they produce a total discontinuity. And in fact, your, your, the information coming into your visual system during that saccade is useless. It's just a blur. And so your brain shuts down the visual processing and filters that information out. So... Part of why cuts work is that they take advantage of the mechanisms that our visual system and our eye movement control system adapted to control this roving eye um, and to control the input that comes from it. And, um, and part of how cuts function is by giving us the kinds of transitions that we get from blinks and eye movements. I see. So, so even though I might feel like I have this sort of detailed and continuous um, view of the my surroundings, in fact, I do not, and my my brain is patching stuff in for me all the time. Yeah, most of us have you know the introspective sense that there's a little theater inside our heads that's reconstructing a model of the world out there, and that does happen to some degree, but our introspections about how detailed that model is and how veridical it is are way off. And it's easy to see this um, in uh, experiments looking at a phenomenon called change blindness. So if you show me a picture and then while I make one of these rapid eye movements, you change something in the picture, it can be a pretty big thing. It's often very difficult for me to spot the change. So you can take uh, you know, a character's hat and change it from one hat to another. When there's only two people in the scene, you can change, take a 
seen showing a bunch of houses and change the color of one of the houses. These are changes that if I'm not making a saccade while you make them, they're totally obvious. And we think it feels like they're totally obvious because, oh, well, I'm comparing what's in front of my eyeballs now to what my memory of what was in my front of my eyeballs a few hundred milliseconds ago. And I can detect that, that, dis, that uh, difference. But really, it turns out that the reason that we detect those is because that change itself introduces a big visual transient. If it's not hidden by one of these psychotic eye movements, then we're, we're in trouble. We don't detect them. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so so uh, what have we been able to learn uh, about the visual system and about saccades by, by being able to exploit uh, this ability to, to sort of cut uh, while someone is um, not really paying attention or maybe not paying attention in quite the same way? Yeah. So there's a bunch of you know, great, fine, important fine-grained questions that we can ask about the neural processing of visual information, the computational processing of visual information. We've learned about what's the capacity of the representations that we construct in our heads. Um, what's the rate at which they're updated? Um, what's the fidelity? You know, how big of a change is is detectable by this system. And all of those things are really important for not just understanding how movies work, but also doing things like building computer interfaces that people can use and building safety technology for operating vehicles and equipment and stuff like that. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, uh, <laughs> uh, I started thinking about this, um, I guess there's this movie called the room. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, it's, it's notoriously bad. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so bad. It's, it's, it's so bad. It's good. It's one of those movies. It's got a kind of a cult following. Um, and it made me realize that I had this whole visual language for film that I had literally never thought about. You know, I've never studied film or anything like that, but, um, you know, I expect certain things. Like if you give me, um, a shot of a scene and then an exterior shot and then another scene, I assume that there's a, either a jump in time or location or both. And this, this film taught me that I expected these things because it totally violated them pretty much routinely. Um, so maybe you can tell me a little bit about, um, you know, what we can learn about splicing together certain kinds of events. Yeah, there's, there's two great things there. So one is, um, you know, what's the, what are the rules uh, that the visual system might have for what comes before and after an eye movement. And um, the cognitive, psychologist, cognitive psychologist Julian Hochberg um, had this great idea that the brain is constantly forming what he called visual questions and visual answers. Um, and that's one way to think about how it guides the eyes around. So I might, based on what I can currently process, form a, an expectation about something that maybe is outside my visual field or on the edge of my visual field. And so I'll plan an eye movement in order to acquire the information to test that hypothesis or answer that question. And if you look at editing that works well, a lot of it has that feel that, um, so for example, a kind of classical sequence that's used a lot in in dialogue scenes and other scenes is a character looks at something a, an object or a person and then you cut to the thing that they're looking at and so that 
when the character looks, that gives you a visual question. And when you cut, that gives you the answer to the visual question. So the, the other thing that, that, that's a really terrific question is how much of that visual language is baked in by evolution and how much of it you have to acquire by experience with film. And um, there are a couple psychologists who've been looking at this. Sermon Ilderar and Stefan Schwann have been doing studies where um, they expose uh, uh, people from a communities who live way up in the mountains in isolated parts of Turkey and grow, have grown up without screens to film simple film editing under controlled circumstances for the first time. And the thing that jumps out at me when I read these studies is how, um, how non-exotic this experience is for them. So it's not like people, you know, it's not like someone who grows up without screens is, um, completely baffled or stumped or terrified by seeing a television or a computer screen for the first time. And, and it's not that they can't get editing, um, that they can't realize that two successive views are views of the same object. But there are some of these conventions, like um, if you have an exterior shot and then um, you show someone going through a doorway and then you cut to an interior shot, you or I, as you were suggesting, would interpret that as as changing from the point of view of being outside, looking at the building from, to the point of view of the character who's now inside the building. And their participants didn't seem to get that, that transition very often. And so that might be conventional. That might be the kind of thing that we have to learn. And experiments can help you sort out, okay, what are the things that are just taking advantage of the natural properties of the system? And what are the things that are conventions that filmmakers and audiences have, have co-evolved? So um, one of the things that I, I got from reading some of your work uh, was that there's there's sort of um, there's some work that's being done now at the very earliest stages of the visual system where basically relying on saccades that kind of thing um, but but not all the way to the top either um, the the places where we're identifying objects and sort of parsing ideas uh, can you tell me a little bit a bit more about this sort of middle area yeah sure so um, a lot of the work that we do in my lab lives in that middle area. So we're interested in how people comprehend the structure of events and, and remember them later. Um, and part of how I got interested in film editing is it, sorry, part of how I got interested in film editing is that it's natural to guess that when you have a cut, that's going to chop up your subjective experience your stream of consciousness into a boundary between meaningful events um so it's natural to think that when a cut happens that will be an event boundary and in the lab we've been finding that event boundaries in normal perception perception without cuts are super important for things like controlling your actions and determining what you remember later um and so we were interested in the relationship between these low-level editing properties and how people are segmenting their experience. It turns out, though, that that natural idea that cuts are going to be event boundaries is totally wrong. <laughs> My colleagues, uh, when I first started 
talking about this question with people in film studies, they told me, oh, no, cuts are, first of all, much more frequent than, than you realize. And second of all, um, many of them are designed to be invisible. In fact, in, the invisible cut is a standard term of art in film editing. Um, and there are a bunch of rules of thumb that have been worked out in editing to try and make cuts of it invisible. It turns out that what makes something into a boundary between meaningful events is almost always stuff that's happening in the story. So when lots of things are changing, things like changes in location, uh, changes in character, changes in the objects that are present, changes in goals, those all tend to create event boundaries. And our, our account based mostly on looking at films that don't have any cuts at all, but it turns out to apply pretty well to film, to standard editing of films. Our account says that the reason that you experience that subjective chunking of experience is that you're constantly trying to predict what's going to happen next. This is super helpful because it helps you get out of the way before the line attacks or predict where the prey is going to go before it gets there so you can grab it. And you do that prediction guided by a little memory model of what's happening now that keeps track of information like what the characters are, what the objects are, what the locations and setting are. And when your predictions start uh, generating errors, then that's a really good time to update that model. And when, so when lots of stuff changes, then you start making prediction errors and then you update your model. And so editing by itself doesn't produce these prediction errors, but it can give the filmmaker the opportunity to introduce changes. For example, most changes in location in a film are done with edits. Now, there are, of course, exceptions. You can have tracking shots where you follow somebody through a doorway from one room to another, from inside to outside. You can have characters walk in and out of a movie um, without an edit. But most changes in location, it turns out, in film are done with editing. Um, and when cuts produce event boundaries, it's because um, they made those kinds of changes. So if we were if if we were cutting within a scene and I'm I'm thinking of some of the work that you did uh using um the the 1956 um version of the red balloon. Yeah. Um so when you're cutting within a scene often you don't you don't see these sort of vigorous changes um Exactly. Yeah, so um one set of analyses that Joe Magliano and I did of the red balloon um, used data that we'd collected on people's brain responses while watching that film. Right. You put folks in an MRI scanner, right? Yeah. So brain yeah. activity was measured with functional MRI, which measures changes in the relative concentration of oxygenated hemoglobin in your blood. So basically, when you use a part of your body, like if you do a bunch of curls with your bicep, um, your body will route more oxygenated blood to that area. And the same thing happens on a pretty small scale within your brain. So if one area of your brain is producing more action potentials, firing more neurons, then uh, your vasculature, your blood vessels, will route more oxygenated blood to that area. And we can see that with the MRI scanner with pretty decent, though not brilliant, 
temporal and spatial resolution. And so we use this to ask, well, what's going on in people's brains um, as they're experiencing event boundaries and editing in the red balloon? Um, and in particular, Joe and I were intrigued by this thing that we started off the interview with that when you experience an edit, you know, you blow the visual system away, you change every pixel throughout a large part of your field of view. But most of these edits, it's not just that people aren't freaked out by them, it's that most of them are invisible. So if you just throw people into a theater and have them watch five minutes of a movie and then ask them, by the way, how many cuts were in those five minutes, they tend to radically underestimate. And even for pros, it, it can be difficult to count every cut in a movie as it goes by. Um, so how could these things that are such big potential drivers of the visual system be so invisible. So first we looked at just the brain's response to cuts. And sure enough, in the early visual areas in your brain, these are right in the back in an area uh, called primary visual cortex in the occipital lobe. Primary visual cortex goes crazy when there's a cut. And we knew that that was likely because um, most cells throughout our perceptual systems respond more vigorously to change than to stasis. We focused on brain areas that were particularly active for those cuts where there's a big visual discontinuity, but there's not an event boundary. So you have to bridge over that big physical discontinuity and maintain your current event model. So this is just a just a pause. This would be something like where we see a character look at something and then we see the object the character is looking at like that kind of a cut. So yeah, these are most of the edits in a film. So I, the example I was going to give was if you got two people talking, you usually cut back and forth between their heads. And, you know, those are we're really not aware of that kind of thing. Or, if, you know, two people are making breakfast in a kitchen. You're going to cut all around from character to character. You're going to cut from the eggs to the milk, to the fridge. And people don't, you know, are not don't know that notice that very much, but you know, then if someone bursts in screaming in the middle of breakfast with a knife in their back, then that's an event. <laughs> breakfast suddenly got weird. <laughs> exactly. So, so we're interested in those cuts where you're cutting between the two people making breakfast. Um, but it's not a new event. And, and it turns out that there's a, a bunch of higher level visual areas, the, the areas that receive input from that primary visual cortex and do higher level uh, scene analysis that were especially active at those kind of cuts, but not as active when you had an event boundary. And we think that those areas are working over time to kind of do the wallpapering over the visual discontinuities in the service of constructing a coherent continuous event model. So sort of the same way that like almost piggybacking on the way that our, our brain sort of wallpapers over our own visual disconnects when we're, we were experiencing a saccade. Is that, is that what's happening? That's exactly the connection to make. It's not the case that our brains evolved this computational structure in response to the invention of film. It's that our brains evolved those mechanisms in order to deal with the visual discontinuities that we've evolved with, so blinks and saccades, 
and probably lapses of attention and occlusion too, right? So sometimes um, you miss something in a scene, not because you blinked or moved your eyes, but just because you got distracted by something or a bus drove in front of you and you missed it for a second. So all those things happen in, uh, in our real life without any cuts and our visual systems evolve to deal with that. And then that's the brain that we take into the movie theater. Um, and it just keeps doing that same kind of work in response to film editing. And the result is that with good editing, um, we're able to seamlessly construct this continuous reality. Um, and that actually takes us back to, to where we started. What's really evolved is that filmmakers pretty early in the game and con on a continuing basis suss out all these deep, important, beautiful things about how our visual systems work without ever doing an experiment or without ever thinking about it in that same formal way. They're approaching the visual system from the point of view of art and practice. And that's a great compliment to what we do in the lab. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, so I want to talk a little bit about bad editing, because I feel like, at least for me, um, sometimes I learn a lot about art from something that is bad, sometimes more so than, than some, from something that is good, because the things that are good are sometimes a little bit invisible, whereas the things that are bad stick out. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about um, the kinds of cuts that are, are techniques that can really screw people up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, obviously for me, at least, uh, one of them is, uh, sort of like what you see with the Blair Witch Project. Like when you, when the, the film, uh, when the camera bumps like that, I get nauseated, mm -hmm. um, and which I think is a pretty common response. Um, yeah. Cloverfield was the one that really took that to the, to the highest nausea level. I Ooh. Um, so maybe you can tell me a little bit about, um, these, these sorts of things that can be used to sort of discombobulate. Uh, viewers and you know is there anything worth learning from them as well yeah sure i think i think bad editing is super informative the the jerky handheld camera um the that nausea effect um comes from a disconnect between a part of your visual system that's not optimized for recognizing objects and um and and scenes, but for keeping track of where you are as you move around, a disconnect between that part of your visual system and another system for keeping track of where you are that, that's your inner ear accelerometer. So in, in your inner ear, you have uh, these fluid-filled chambers with little, um, little tiny bits of bone called otoliths that float around, and you've got hair cells that detect the movement of the otoliths. And so when you turn your head you can get information about that acceleration from those organs in your inner ear. And most of the time that information lines up with the information coming from your visual system. If that system, that inner ear system is pretty sensitive to toxins. So if it starts misfiring, that's a good hint that you might've eaten something bad and you ought to get rid of it. And <laughs> So we evolved the systems that if the, if the output of that system conflicts with the output of other systems, particularly your visual system, then let's, let's unload lunch. <laughs> and so if you have something like a jerky handheld camera, what you're doing is you're pr producing that kind of conflict. And that's why it tends to, to make people nauseated. My other um, my really favorite kind of... Ed editing that's so bad it's good is the 
use of jump cuts, both intentionally and unintentionally. So a jump cut is when you have a cut that is big enough that it produces a pretty big visual discontinuity, but still small enough that the, that the objects at, at, at low frequency are kind of in about the same place that they were before. So, for example, if you just point the camera to, at a scene and then cut to the same camera rotated by, say, 15, 20 degrees, it, it feels like everything in the scene moved over discon discontinuously. Uh, or if you move the camera four feet forward, it feels like everything jumped toward you. And... Um, that's a, another great conflict. It's a, it's a conflict between parts of your visual system that are optimized for dealing with motion and parts of your visual system that are optimized for tracking objects. And they're, they're producing um, different outputs that have to get reconciled. I, but I like it really just because I imprinted on, um, on early 80s rock videos. and They're all jump cuts. <laughs> Cut of the band walking toward you, and then you know you cut out two seconds, and then they're they're jumping and they're jumping and they're jumping. It's just that's a that's my childhood. So just to spin this forward a little, um, what do you what do you want to look at next? What are what are some of the things that you're excited about to to begin studying uh, for the future? Yeah, well, you know, in, in my day job, we work on serious problems about how. Um, in everyday life, we perceive and remember and plan for the future and how that can be disrupted by um, disease such as post-traumatic stress disorder or, um, or dementia, how it develops in childhood and changes in healthy aging, um, and how how we can intervene on those processes to improve education and help um, compensate for some of the effects of, of healthy aging of these diseases. So in the lab, we're really interested in using film as a tool to help people improve their comprehension and memory of events. So, you know, we talked for a bit about how editing interacts with the construction of adaptive event representations. Well, if we can get in there and, and provide people with maybe a, uh, an adjunct to their everyday perception or, or at least to their TV viewing that helps chunk the activity more adaptively for them, that could be, turn out to be a really useful tool. These event movie editing techniques also could turn out to be really helpful in, um, in diagnosing uh, neurological and psychiatric disorders. And so we're real interested in that kind of stuff. But, but purely on the film front, um, I'm really just interested in forming a, a more comprehensive and complete account of the exciting kinds of mechanisms that we've talked about today. Like, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about jump cuts. We've talked a little bit about continuity editing. We've talked a little bit about change blindness, but the catalog of how the visual system copes with these things and, and the technical knowledge about how the system responds and what's possible is, is just totally incomplete. Um, there's been very little neuro serious neuroscience applied to film editing and 
Um, so my longer term goal on that front is to come up with a comprehensive account, a theory that, you know, you could use to actually tell filmmakers for real what happens when they do X or Y or Z. Oh, I love it. A film theory of the brain. Yeah, or or a brain theory of film. <laughs> well, Jeff, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. This has been really fascinating. Sure, it's a pleasure, Liz. That's our show. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope you had as much fun as we did. We'll be back in about two weeks. And uh, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes if you like the podcast. It's at Verge ESP. Um, or you can find us on SoundCloud. And uh, be sure to give us a good rating if you enjoy the podcast. Or a bad rating. Just tell us how you feel. Yeah, we're into feelings around here. Definitely. Anyway, uh, we're every other Wednesday. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.